Welcome back to Spiritual Directors Talking About Stuff. Today we had a great conversation with my friend Jason Elam. Um, I connected with Jason online through Facebook and through his his podcast, which is called Messy Spirituality. And we have become really close friends, and I really value his friendship because um, he has really helped in in just kind of helping me process things through my deconstruction and, and really difficult situations and experiences over the last couple of years. And so it was really great to have him on. Um, we talked about all kinds of fun things like, well, deconstruction, obviously, because that's um, that's a topic that we're we're all very passionate about. Um, I think it's our favorite one. <laughs> yeah, I know. it's 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 the end thing these days. I mean, the the, the all the cool people are doing it, but um, it's you know I think it's a it's a it's an experience and a process that people go through, and um, it's not to be feared. But another thing we talked about is how the church in general is so opposed to it and scared of this process of deconstruction that they're seeing. Just thinking from our conversation when we talked about the critical journey last season and how the church is really set up for people to thrive in their in the early stages of faith. And once they hit deconstruction or a dark night of the spirit or any kind of questioning phase of their life, the church is just not set up to uh, um, to journey with them well through that. And trust God to journey with them and to uh, bring them back to a place of deep relationship with God in whatever that looks like. Um, and uh, and so that can be scary if, if you uh, don't allow yourself to uh, come to a place of uh, knowing who God is to you. And I do believe that part of that journey is uh, understanding for yourself who you believe God to be. And I think that the church is set up to have a God in a very specific box for each specific denomination and uh, for someone to, uh, um, you know, uh, and for someone to question that and to, to uh, experience a, a different image of God can uh, be very threatening to the church as it exists. And so I think that is probably why the church is so afraid of it, because what does that mean for them if people don't believe what they're preaching or what they have told you that God is instead of allowing people to discover who God is to them? I agree with you. Um, it, it definitely is disconcerting for them because, like you said, you know, once people start thinking for themselves, using their brains, they start to question some of the doctrines that the church has held firmly for, you know, millennia. And, um, and so, yeah, that's, uh, that's very scary for them. So, yeah, we had, we had a great discussion about that topic with Jason. And, you know, of course, we talked about his faith background and how he um, started into the deconstruction process. And then just, you know, what, what is faith these days? Um, you know, faith, there's, there's all kinds of you know, ideas and definitions of people that people think uh, when they think of faith. But, um, you know, we talked about what we really think faith is these days. And so it's a great conversation and I hope you really enjoy it.
excited to have my friend Jason Elam on the podcast with us. Um, Jason is Brandy's grateful husband and dad to four awesome kids. He's a former professional wrestler, a radio broadcaster, and a local church pastor. He's the host of the Messy Spirituality podcast and a Pathios contributor at MessySpirituality.org. Jason is one of 12 co-authors of the recently released book, Before You Lose Your Mind, Deconstructing Bad Theology in the Church, published by Choir. Thanks for coming on, Jason. Christopher, it's exciting to be on your podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me. You're welcome. Um, I want to kind of give our listeners a little background on how I met you. Um, I, I, I stumbled across your podcast probably a year and a half ago. Um, I was probably searching for things on um, deconstruction-related issues because I, I found myself in that world and I needed to kind of help make sense of that. So I found the Messy Spirituality podcast, listened to pretty much everything that had you, you had already published up to that point, and, um, and then also jumped into the Facebook group, the Messy Conversations, which uh, was, was really um, a godsend and, and a lifesaver because uh, not long after I had um, discovered your podcast and joined the Facebook group, uh, my wife and I had a a really unfortunate situation with our church, which I'm, I believe I'm, I have explained probably more than once on this podcast. And, and, um, and so that group in messy conversations on Facebook was, was my, um, that was my tribe during that time of, of having a really hard, uh, season with the church. And, um, so I just want to thank you for, for, for having that place on Facebook and doing that podcast. It was, it was really a, a help through that difficult time. Well, I'm grateful that you connected with us through that. I hate all that you went through, but I do feel like, I mean, now I would consider you one of my best friends. And I know we don't get to talk as often as we probably would like to, but our, our conversations have always been rich and deep and I'm grateful for the connection, however it happened. Yeah. So am I. And I, I, I was on your podcast as well. I think it was episode 48 uh, last year and we had a really great conversation. So I really am um, thankful for your friendship and um, glad to have you here to talk with us on our podcast now. I'm excited to be here. And I would just like to say thank you, Jason, so much for the space that you provide for people to be able to have conversations in a safe place, Um, especially I feel like in a lot of the church climate that I come across it's, you know, not okay to ask questions and to, uh, to deconstruct. It's like a big naughty word. And, um, and so anyone that is creating a truly safe space that isn't, you know, deconstructing just cause it's like the sexy thing to do right now, but <laughs> right. just, you know, to truly be in it and to give grace and, uh, to love people no matter where they are, whether you agree or disagree is huge. So thank you for the work that you've been doing in those spaces. Oh, thanks so much for saying that. That's really kind of you. I I feel like that's where the real ministry happens, right? I mean, for a long time, I thought ministry was a, something that only happened at a pulpit. And, you know, I really thought of a career trajectory from being youth pastor to associate pastor to senior pastor as being advancing in ministry. And, and I just realized that very little actual ministry happens that way. 
ministry happens through relationships. Um, a, a very wise pastor told me years and years ago that the word ministry, the literal definition in his understanding was the administration of the love of God. And when I start to think of ministry that way, um, I mean, obviously you can do that from a pulpit, but I think Jesus only did like 5% of the New, the New Testament recorded ministry in, in a speaking method. And so it's it's all about those relationships and creating space and accepting people where they are and and not waiting for them to come to you, going to them. And uh, so we, we've tried to make some space for that. I haven't always been great at it, but uh, I, I definitely have found more and more people who are in this deconstruction moment that we seem to be in right now uh, who are hungry for space where they can just ask those questions and talk about who the things they've really struggled with within that they can't talk about at church, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's, that's what we try to provide for people as spiritual directors as well. And um, when we are one-on-one -on -one with someone, um, they need that space to ask questions without judgment and without answers. Um, that is not our job to provide answers, but to provide the space for them to ask those questions and seek the answers wherever they can find them that, that will satisfy them. Um, so yeah, so, uh, I'm really glad that, you know, you have provided space and, and, and there's, there are others also on Facebook who've also provided spaces. So there's, there's so many more spaces now I feel like than, than there used to be. But of course, once you kind of get into this deconstruction world, you see it everywhere. Um, and you know, maybe it was, maybe it has been common for a long time. I don't know, but just seems like. Uh, it's definitely a lot more common now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so too. And I, and I wonder that question a lot, Christopher. I wonder if, has it always been there? We just didn't see it until we needed it. You know, there are safe people and, and those, those are the ones behind the safe spaces. Right. And so right. even before these folks formed their Facebook groups or their social media accounts, there were safe spaces. It was just harder to find them. I think before we all connected on the internet. Yeah, that, that's right. I feel like um, people have probably been asking these kinds of questions, well, probably for centuries, but certainly for decades, and um, never felt like maybe they had permission to do that. Um, and I think that maybe people are, they feel freer to ask those questions and come to different conclusions than the church would traditionally have them come to. Um, so so that's that's also a good thing. We remember that, you know, it wasn't all that long ago that you could be burned at the stake for asking some exactly. of these questions. So exactly right. <laughs> that's called progress, exactly. my friend. <laughs> that's very, very true. And, um, you know, from my side of deconstruction, I see this as a good process, a healthy process. On the other side, you know, the, the, the front side of deconstruction, people see that as a, a real problem. And, um, you know, they would call it any number of things, backsliding and... Um, heresy apostatizing heresy yes. uh, you know it, whatever they'll find any any word that they can to to try to minimize it well and i feel like because there is now so many more safe places than there had been it seems like if that's the trajectory um i'm seeing a lot of churches like 
fighting back. Like all of a sudden it's like zero to a hundred. And I'm hearing in so many sermons in, in a lot of churches that are saying, you know, don't ever doubt, like, you know, you're not allowed to question like God is, you know, um, God is who God says he is. And, you know, and you can never have doubt. And that's, you know, if you want to stay a Christian, you have to believe these things and deconstruction is bad and, and all of these things. And I was fortunate to be a part of a church for over a decade that was very welcoming of questions and, uh, Hey, God can handle your questions and your doubt because that's what it means to be in a relationship with God. And, uh, which was very, um, it was a gift, I would say, you know, uh, even though when I eventually became on staff at that church, then I realized I wasn't allowed to ask questions anymore. It's okay to ask questions as an attendee, but if you're on staff, you know, then you're going to be, um, you know, uh, told that you're going down a a dangerous path. (laughs) Held to that higher standard, right? Yes. (laughs) Well, it's, it's scary for me that folks, you know, I guess established religion um, in America has figured out that they're not going to exist much longer without making room for questions. But I'm afraid that what's about to happen is they're about to say, bring your questions, bring your doubts, bring your struggles, and mean that the exact same way that they meant everyone is welcome. Right. (laughs) Uh, exactly. Because so many people came who didn't fit the mold, believing everyone was welcome because we had it on our banners and we had it in our bulletin and we had it on our website and our Facebook page. And they showed up and they were nothing like the people who were in that congregation and they did not find the welcome as advertised. And uh, so that's heartbreaking to me, but I'm afraid that exact same thing is about to happen with questions. We're going to realize pastors are going to figure it out. You've got to make space for people's questions or you're not going to exist in the next, um, you know, several years. But uh, they're going to say, they're going to advertise that we make room for questions, but questions get messy. And, and I can say this as someone who tried it. We literally had a, what we called a talkback session at the end of our services when I was pastoring. And, um, man, when people start asking those questions, um, the answers get messy. And, you know, I don't think that the church exists to provide answers. I think God is in the questions. I I think we need to get really good at saying, I don't know. I think we need to make room for that, for uncertainty rather than certainty. But we've thought that certainty was the goal for so long that it feels like when we do embrace the questions, it's so that we can get them to the right answer. And I think that's a really dangerous place because we we can deconstruction is a great thing for people who need to experience it, but only if we don't end up in the exact same place with different answers, right? Is we can become fundamentalist about all the new things that we had previously rejected and still end up a fundamentalist. And uh, I just hope that as we embrace the questions, that we leave room for mystery that we leave room for a lack of understanding, that we leave room for the questions to exist long-term. For In my mind, deconstruction is not a season that I go through and then come out the other side. Uh, It's a spiritual evolution that takes the rest of my life. And I don't know that it will ever end. And I don't think that I'll ever come to a final conclusion about much of anything. 
Um, and so I hope that there are going to be spaces that pop up where the questions are embraced to the degree that we can be comfortable with the questions existing long-term and maybe forever. I have a question for you. Sure. The, and this with a little bit of like a back explanation, I guess. So mm-hmm. I have a friend that uh, loves the Hebrew language and, and loves connecting the Old Testament to the New Testament uh, with the language that um, that they used to speak way back when. So he talked about, you know, um, if you, uh, the word Israel means bondage. And so if you uh, walk this path where you're like, no, this, this side or this side are, you know, is the correct one, even if they're opposite, that's very like fundamentalist in a way, like you were saying, but it's, it's bondage, but God is inviting us into a wide open space of, a, um, that, is more in that gray area. So it's not all the way up against one side of the wall or the other, but this space in the middle, it's uh, the Hebrew word is revak. And so that's where the wrestling happens because there's space now to wrestle with God, you know, and there's no wrestling up against the wall because you're so certain. Right. And uh, that is exactly. And uh, he also said, what happens when you wrestle with somebody is that like, you can't wrestle with somebody that's all the way across the room. So when you're wrestling, you're up close and personal. So to wrestle with God, to be asking these questions and to feel uncertain is to be up close and personal in true relationship with God. And uh, so I, my question is, what are, why is wrestling and slash deconstruction, why is that so scary for people? Well, unfortunately... I, I, I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to come off like I think every pastor, church leader is a control freak. But I know that in my own life for 20-something years of pastoral ministry, it's about control. Yeah, We don't want people going past the established boundaries. Because mm-hmm. if they no longer believe what we believe, if they don't come to the same conclusions as us, they may lose respect for us. They may go to a different church. They may not want to be a part of this family anymore. Or they may start sowing discord like that Christopher Aker um, and, and asking questions of other people in the congregation. And then soon half mm-hmm. the church is gone because folks started asking yep. questions and didn't like our answers. Um, exactly. But I love the concept. You know, you're talking about the Hebrew language. I love the Hebrew concept of Midrash. I love the wrestling. I love the concept of a church that is a group of rabbis that are wrestling together with the meaning of the text. And nobody has the established authority to supersede anyone else's understanding. They just wrestle with it. And it, and the conclusion is not what matters. It's the wrestling match that matters. I love that. And I hope that we can, as a church, become more like that. Amen. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh man. Um, yeah, I mean, part of the part of the problem that we ran into with our church last year was that um, you know I, I was asking those questions and I was doing it in the open and that was obviously off limits because I was I was you know a, a leader in in some ways in the church and so they said you know you have a voice people listen to and so you need to be careful what you say and and I you know I wasn't gonna conform anymore so that's that's really bad. Well, I mean, I think Christopher, if I remember uh, your story correctly, you had a history in like the house church movement, right? So Yes, yes. So you had been groomed 
to ask questions. You had been groomed yes. that church was a participatory event. And so yes. you came into that church with the understanding that the wrestling match is where the real stuff happens. And then mm -hmm. you found, as we do so often, that in the established institutional church, um, especially as Maggie was saying in, earlier, once you become a leader, there are expectations that you will stay mm -hmm. confined to the established understanding of things. And uh, I'm sorry that that happened to you, but I think there's a lot more freedom in your life now than there was then. Yeah, there is. And, you know, um, I think that Old Testament story of Jacob wrestling with, you know, that stranger at through the night, that's a perfect metaphor of, of this wrestling and that in the end you may come out with an injury, but it's, you're going to be blessed. It's going to be a better place than you were, were when you started. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, and that injury is, um, like evidence that you wrestled, mm -hmm, you right. know, it's evidence exactly. of the, the up close and personal relationship, I would say. Mm -hmm. Right. That divine encounter that, uh, the wrestling match is the divine encounter and, and you walk differently after the match is over. Um, and, and again, I don't think the match is ever really over. So um, mm -hmm. right. we just walk differently the rest of our lives. And I mean, I know that my deconstruction story, you know, I, I, I literally, Christopher's heard this a thousand times, but I, I got on the track at our local gym, uh, believing in a very hateful, vengeful God. And when I got off the track that day, I didn't believe in those things anymore. I believed that, that there was enough love in God's heart for every human being that has ever existed, that every single one of us is accepted and loved exactly as we are without any agenda. Um, and so that changes the way. If you believe God loves people that way, you're going to walk with the, you're going to walk differently than you did when you got on the track. Um, I remember having some of those very difficult conversations. I was a pastor at the time. And our right-hand folks at our church um, were very traditional in their understanding of, I mean, they were, you know, Bible Belt believers, right? And they really thought that uh, Christianity was part of the cultural uh, experience and that they needed to, you know, defend their faith and, uh, you know, white middle-class Republican Christianity, basically, and so they started asking me some questions. Well, if God loves us as we are, what does this mean about this issue or that issue? And I couldn't take those hard stands that I had taken previously anymore. And I didn't believe uh, some of the things about God and what happens after this life anymore. And um, they, couldn't, they couldn't walk with us anymore. And that broke my heart. These folks were like second parents to me. But... Um, they had to go a different direction. But I, I guess what's cool is if you think that God is in the wrestling, then I then I see that even what led them away was a wrestling match. They may not be acknowledging that yet, but the wrestling match is continuing to take place. And so I'm excited that in the end, we're all going to end up in the embrace of love. At least that's what I believe right now. But I don't have the kind of certainty about that or anything else that I did previously. So. Yeah. Uh, tell us more about that transition. Um, so was it as sudden as you described, you got on the track believing one thing and got off the track believing another, or was there a lot of uh, things that kind of led up to that, that you just finally, it came to a head and you wrestled with it at that point? Um, tell us about that story and that transition. Yeah, it, it was definitely a decades long experience that just culminated on the track at that gym that day. Um, I, 
became a part of a group, the, a coffee house church in 2006. I was still pastoring a local church at the time, but uh, we started meeting a, a different group, started meeting in this little coffee house. And it was exactly what we described with you, Christopher. It was a house church environment. Questions were not just uh, welcome, they were encouraged. And if if nobody was asking questions or wrestling, we wouldn't have much to talk about because that's what we did every week. And um, that created a space. I uh, got to know people that were nothing like me, people that were nothing like the church that I was pastoring, people who were not white middle-class Republicans, and started to see that some of them were just as serious about their faith as folks that I thought, well, this is what you look like if you're serious about your faith. You know, you're a conservative mm-hmm. and you're going to church every Sunday and you sing and you lift your hands during worship and you do this or do that. Um, and so I started to have a perspective that that was bigger. And when you start to see the family is bigger, you start to realize God's way bigger than, than we ever thought God was. And so that uh, started to peel back the layers of that onion and it happened more than a decade before that day on the track at the local gym. And that, that, that journey around that track has continued ever since I got off the track as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I, I definitely had a shift that took place very suddenly, but it was over a decade leading up to it and it's continuing to this day. So as you were kind of wrestling that with that in your own mind, you know, in the years leading up to that, um, we'll call that your, uh, your track experience. Um, how, how did that play out in your sermons in the church that you were pastoring? How did, did, did you feel the freedom to say anything different about God in those sermons? Or did you still feel like you had to keep it in the box that you, that the church was, uh, comfortable hearing? Um, I think that, that that's a tricky question for me because I think I had two different responses at two different seasons of that track journey. In the beginning, I was concerned that when those questions would start to creep in, I would think, oh, that's doubt. That's, that's the evil one whispering in my ear. And so I think my tendency in the pulpit was to respond against that. And, and during that season, I would have been one of those saying the questions are dangerous you know, God's word says it, I believe it, that settles it, you know, that kind of thing. That was my early response to the questions that I was wrestling with. And so like so many, um, when you start to wonder and question things within yourself, you just respond violently against it. And so I was more certain from the pulpit that those things were not what we needed to be doing. Over the years, um, I mellowed. I started to realize that, that, something was happening inside of me and I couldn't stay pinned up against that wall for the rest of my life. Um, in the, in the, uh, church plant where I was the last five years of our ministry, I had great freedom. I could talk about anything from the pulpit. Um, and even the folks that ended up leaving the church, um, were happy to hear those things because they enjoyed the openness and the fact that we were processing together. I think it's when I started to come to conclusions that were different than the wall that they were pinned against um, that became a problem. But there was great freedom the last five years. I think it has to do with the, how long the church has been established. I think it has to do with if there's a denominational setting. I think it has to do with why we uh, have gathered together in the first place. 
church settings that are gathered together around unity of agreement, it's going to be very hard to wrestle with the questions because you're going to end up in different places. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, the church that we were attending, you know, it's one that's going to read the Nicene Creed every week. And this is, this is what we believe. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And yeah, there's no room for questions in the Nicene Creed. <laughs> right. Well, and the thing that's sad for me is the vast majority of people in that local church, I've never been there, but I'm guessing the vast majority of people in the local churches never came to that decision for themselves. Oh, no. They, they were never given the freedom to say, this is what I believe. Because if you want to believe in the Nicene Creed, that's wonderful, but it needs to be a personal ownership. There needs to be a buy-in. And for so many of us, we just believe what somebody passed down to us. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember uh, my grandmother, when she was sick, uh, she had cancer and she was dying. And I was a young Baptist, Southern Baptist evangelist. And so naturally she had never been in church as long as I had known her. And so I was concerned for her soul. And so I asked her in the car one day, what do you believe about God? And she said, well, I listened to Billy Graham on television once, and I believe it exactly the way he said it. Now, I didn't know what that Mm -hmm. meant. And Mm -hmm. I took that, but, you know, I guess that's the great thing about those kind of answers. You could take them to mean whatever you want them to mean. And so I, okay, well, she's got a real faith. I love Billy Graham, you know. (laughs) um, But I think that that's true of so many of us, right? I just embraced the faith that my parents taught me when I was a kid or the church that I went to as a child taught me. And so it was never really mine. It was a Memorex. Do y'all remember, is it live or is it Memorex? That, those were the commercials mm-hmm. when I was a kid. Maggie may not be old enough to remember that, but I remember that. <laughs> um, they were commercials on TV. because We all had these cassette tapes, right? And what we did with our friends was we made these mixtapes. And we'd record. I had, a, I had a dual deck cassette player. And I could play on one and record on the other. The problem is every copy lowered the sound quality a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I would make a copy for my friend and then they'd take it to their house and their dual cassette deck and they'd make a copy for their friend. And four or five generations down, the sound quality was really bad. And that is the faith of the American church right now. Oh, yeah. It's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And rather than folks having legitimate encounters with God for themselves, having the wrestling match, coming through that and saying, you know, this is what I believe. And it's subject to change, but this is where I am right now. And being honest about it and also being honest about the things we don't know. We're not, we're not embracing that yet, but I hope we will. I feel like there's such a safety in the, well, I'm just going to take on what my parents believe or what the church tells me. I'm sure that there is a safety because that wrestling can be scary, that gray area mm-hmm. and the questions like, oh, you know, like that's, that can feel daunting. Um, Last season, Chris and I had a conversation on the podcast with a woman who works with a middle school ministry and their tagline is discovering a faith of your own. Mm. Like that is what their hope for every middle school student is, is that they would understand what their faith means to them, you know, because they do want to help them uh, not just take on what their parents say. And, and I think that's amazing that it's starting in middle school um, and uh, they can start that wrestling there. But then, uh, you know, how do you continue to encourage them to keep that wrestling, that 
asking the question of what do I believe about this? Okay. Like, thank you for telling me X, Y, and Z. Let me figure out if I like all of X, all of Y, and all of Z or parts of it or none of it, you know? And uh, um, so how do we encourage people to keep that going? Because as soon as they get to like big church with all the adults, then it's okay. Like your questions are okay. You're welcome. But here's what we believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we have to reframe the conversation because we've taught faith as a destination. Um, I remember growing I for a little while, I was a pastor of a spirit-filled Lutheran church. And so we did confirmation and, you know, the, this is what the church believes. This is what we stand for. And you buy in, you become part of the membership by agreeing to what we believe. Uh, and it was a destination. You came to this point in your life where you accepted this for yourself and that was it. But if it's more of an evolution than a destination, if it's more about the journey, maybe we can teach folks, uh, even when they're young, that faith is an exploration that lasts the rest of your life and that the conclusions have never been as safe as we thought they were. And uh, being pinned up against the wall your whole life um, doesn't create any authenticity. There's no freedom there. And um, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And so the freedom is in the wrestling. It's in the match. And uh, we embrace the questions. And there are going to be new questions along the way. And there's going to be things we haven't thought of. We're going to wrestle with issues that we never wrestled with before. Um, but that's okay. Because it's not about us having all the right information. It's not about... When I grew up, my understanding was I would be saved and welcomed into heaven one day because I believed the right information. If that's not true, if it's really about embracing the question and making room for mystery in our lives, then that is a journey that will never end. And it's okay to not have it figured out. So I think reframing the conversation helps a lot. But I don't know if that can happen in an institutional setting long term. I, I just I feel like the institution itself diminishes as we embrace the questions. Maggie, didn't you tell us once um... Or you told maybe told me privately once there were, you were a part of a church that did some sort of inventory of what you had to believe, like what was a core Christian belief yes. versus what was kind of ancillary, and you know if you had to have you had to have agreement with these core beliefs to be a Christian, and then the other things were kind of up for debate, and you know some denominations believed one thing, others don't believe something else. What were some of those core ones that that came up? Oh, so good. So uh, the what you're talking about is uh, we'll put a link to this in the show notes, but it's a it's called core versus periphery, and it's um, an exercise that I've done in I think every single small group that I've ever had. We always start out with this, um, and it's it when I first did it over a decade ago, they were it was like the first version, and they had like fifty some statements, you know, um, and now they've narrowed it down to like twenty which aren't like super controversial. Like they've taken off the, like, you know, uh, marriages between a man and a woman and like, you know, the, those kinds of more controversial things. Um, but they, uh, um, and you basically, you go through and you rank them and it's, if you think it's core, you give it a one, which means that if you believe this, you're a Christian, if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian, like that is the dividing line, you know, is whether or not you believe this specific, belief. Um, and then like two, you give it a two. If you're like, 
Um, I would hope that all Christians believe this, but I know that there are some that don't. Like, I probably wouldn't feel comfortable at a church that doesn't believe this, but I still think they're Christians. And then the three is like, oh, it's definitely periphery. Christians are all over the map about it, you know, and we're all still Christians, Um, like the LGBTQ plus issue and a lot of other things. Um, And uh, the idea is that, you know, spoiler, spoiler alert is that at the end of it, everyone in the room has differing numbers of what is a one, a two and a three, you know? And so, and they're just very general statements. Like some, one of them is about baptism, you know, that you are sprinkled or you're dunked for it to be, you know, considered true baptism or, uh, you know, Jesus is the son of God or Jesus literally rose from the dead or Jonah was literally in a whale for three days, like those kinds of statements. And uh, so just in a room of like 10 people, if you're doing this in a small group, the it's all over the map of what people believe is core. And so when it's all over the map that way of what is core, well, we're all Christians and we all think differently about what's core and what's periphery. And we can all still love each other and have grace and compassion as we discuss. Um, but then how do we then go outside of our small group, knowing that it's going to be even more diverse than what we had in our little, you know, small group of 10 people. And uh, so again, like, how do you not put up roadblocks for people to enter into conversations and where do you give grace? And that's, that's why I love it. Um, but what's interesting is in one of the books that Chris and I had to read in seminary, they talked about this issue of core versus periphery. And he said, the core beliefs are those that come from the creeds. Mm. (laughs) And I was like, that's funny (laughs) because I uh, (laughs) would actually say that, you know, I, I think that uh, Paul from scripture had one core belief because I wrote a paper on it and uh, that's it. Everything else is periphery. Yeah. I think that would be really interesting as, as sort of a study to do that with a group and then five years later, go back with the exact same group and do it again and see the shift. Because not only do we all have different periphery and core values, uh, but they change and they shift. And I think that would be really eye-opening. But I would I love the exercise that you just described because it does help us wrestle with those questions. That's awesome. Yep. And then understand that there are going to be people that are in a different place with all of these. And uh, the goal is to love each other, Mm. period. Not despite differing beliefs, but just to love each other in the midst as we have dialogues, not arguments. I love that. Yeah, I I just finished reading a book with a book study group called See No Stranger. And that was written by a, a lady who is a Sikh. And she tells a story about how one of her close childhood friends who was Christian um, they were, you know, they were best friends. They really loved each other. Um, and then all of a sudden one day the, um, the friend learned that she was Sikh and not Christian. And all of a sudden that friend's demeanor completely changed. And, uh, and, and, and so, you know, she tells the story how her friend eventually told her, you're just, you're going to go to hell, you know, but all these years they were best friends. They loved each other. And there, as long as she th- thought that uh, the author Valerie was a Christian, everything was fine. 
But as soon as she realized, oh, you're not really a Christian, well, then now you're going to hell. And nothing changed, you know. She was still the same person she was before that, but only the other person's ideas of her changed. And that's just a really clear um, a clear description, I think, of, of, of this idea of what's, what's got to be core and what's got, uh, you know, what can be up for grabs, um, you know, and, and people would say, I've read, I read the book all the way through. And I would say, if, if I didn't know this lady was a Sikh, I would think she's a Christian. I mean, there's just so much of the same core beliefs of lo- around love, loving your neighbor from the Sikh tradition that comes from the Christian tradition, or at least it's supposed to come from the tr- Christian tradition, which we don't always see. Yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm at the point in the wrestling now that I'm asking the question, where did we get the idea that being a Christian was the point? Mm-hmm. Now I, I've been, I've spent my life in the local church. I am captivated by Jesus. I am crazy about Jesus. And I, I don't know that that's ever going to change at this point. I mean, it's just been a permanent fixture in my life. I'm absolutely captivated by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Um, but Jesus didn't go around trying to convert everybody into Christians. Mm-hmm. That was not what he spent his life doing. Um, and I, th- I think, you know, obviously the name Christian developed for people who were following after the, the life and message of Jesus. And so I, I do consider myself a Christian, but I don't think converting other people to that is the purpose of my life. And uh, I think the, the wrestling match is so much bigger. It hap- it's beyond our local churches. It's beyond our small group. It's beyond all of that. And, and we're not trying to convert somebody to the right information anymore. Right. So if, if that has shifted, then it makes room for relationships like you were just describing, where those aren't the things that really matter because you are who you are and I love who you are. And so if we haven't come to the same conclusion, that's not really a core issue to me. But that's terrifying. And institutions don't survive with that. Um, <laughs> no. That with that mindset, right? It just falls apart. Um, uh, you know, there's been. There have been uh, some Unitarian type churches that have tried to do that. And it just, it seems like there's a revolving door of folks in and out of those places because we've learned that church is about agreement and doctrinal agreement. And so we gather around those things. And then when our beliefs start to shift, we go find a different church. But I just, um, you know, I love that small group, that house church concept where these things can be fluid and we're committed to each other and the relationship rather than a set of doctrinal beliefs. Which I think is very in line with uh, what Jesus modeled. Yeah. Just want to throw that out there. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think Jesus was, was trying to get his fellow Jews to, to live, live them, the, you know, the, the spirit of the law, which was love your neighbor, you know, be the, be the loving person in the world that, you know, with that the law was intended to, create in, in from the beginning, but didn't always do that. Yeah. yeah the yeah. spirit of the law, again, like you said, is love, not legalism, right. but legalism right. is so much easier. It is. Yeah. Love is messy. Yeah. Well, um, so, you know, uh, Jason, you mentioned in your bio, you talked about, you were one of, um, many co-authors on this new book that recently came out and, um, you know, it was published as kind of a um, 
a counterpoint to another book that came out, which we won't even name because we don't want people to even go look it up and go buy it. But, um, but tell us about that book um, before you lose your mind. Well, you're right. It was uh, it was written as a response to another book. Um, Maggie mentioned earlier that a lot of Christian celebrities or powerful uh, sacred superstars uh, have started to condemn the deconstruction movement. And uh, there was a book that came out um, that essentially, not every single chapter, there were actually one or two really good chapters in there. Uh, but the the gist of the book was, you can't embrace the questions. They will lead you to a bad place. They will lead you away from faith. And meditating and dwelling on the accepted norms of Christianity is where the truth is. Well, my friend Keith Giles, I was literally interviewing him for my podcast, and he starts telling me about this book that he and several of his friends are going to write in response to the Gospel Coalition's book. And um, so he just said, uh, he's listing the authors, and he mentions my name. And that was the first I'd heard about that, Um, but I was excited about the possibility because I do think that there are so many people, more than we even recognize at this point. I think we've seen the tip of the iceberg on the deconstruction moment that we're in, but there's so many people who are wrestling with questions who have yet to come out of the woodwork. They don't know that it's safe. They don't know that anybody else is wrestling with this. They think they're alone in their churches. And um, so I was excited about creating some more space with a book to just say, you are not alone. And so there are 12 different people talking about their deconstruction journeys um, and where, where they've been, where they are now. Uh, and the fact that this may not be uh, just a temporary shift, this may be something that you wrestle with for the rest of your life. And so I was really excited to be a part of that and uh, had some relationships formed as a result of being a part of the book. What has the response been like? It's been really good because it's been exactly what we would hope for. Um, <laughs> go If you go to Amazon and look at Before You Lose Your Mind um, at Keith Giles, because he's the general editor, you can find it quickly that way. Uh, look for the one-star reviews, and that will mm-hmm. pretty much tell you everything you need to know about the book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because uh, you get a very violent reaction from folks who have uh, an agenda of keeping everyone inside the same camp. And the fact that they are responding violently against it says, all right, maybe we're on to something. Um, mm-hmm. But there are so many more great reviews from people who thought they were alone and have um, realized that there is a bigger community out there. There is safe space. It's just not in those predetermined sacred walls that they thought it was going to be in. Um, and, and that we're all wrestling with these same questions and coming to different conclusions. And that's okay. And so the response has been fantastic. I'm really excited about that. So what kind of things are you passionate about right now, Jason? Oh, goodness. Um, I'm passionate about uh, peace. Um, I'm, I'm really uh, captivated by this idea of nonviolent struggle and how, um, for example, African-Americans in this country uh, overcame dec- uh, you know, centuries of uh, bondage through nonviolent means. Um, I think the example that Jesus gives us on overcoming through nonviolence is huge, very captivating. Um, I'm passionate about my family. I'm passionate about sunsets on the beach. Um, a couple of years ago, um, we kind of reached the end of our local church journey, and I just couldn't do the local church thing anymore. And we um, 
turned our Sunday morning service into a local, like a farmer's market where everything was free. And um, so people would come in and they would shop in our sanctuary on Sunday mornings. It was awesome. Uh, we did that until we ran out of money. And when we ran out of money, it broke my heart. And I hated that we had to shut it down. But once we came to the end of that journey, um, I said to my wife, you know, we've been chasing my dream all these years. Let's chase your dream of, of living at the beach. And so she and a couple of our kids came down to Florida and uh, went on a house hunting mission overnight and found a house and she signed a lease that I on a house I'd never seen. And we've lived there now for two <laughs> years. And um, so we try to get as many sunsets at the beach as we can. And uh, I just kind of take that as a, a reminder every time I see it that um, I don't know how the sun goes down. I don't know with all certainty that it's going to come up again tomorrow, but there's something about living in the in-between. And so I'll sit on the beach and I'll watch the sun go down, believing that it's going to come up again tomorrow, uh, but kind of living in that mystery of how, how all that works and realizing that it's all so much bigger than me. And so I'm passionate about that. I just enjoy uh, the stillness and uh, focusing. Um, relationships are where it's at. Um, I have a lot more friends than I used to, which is weird because we just went through this season of not being able to see each other, you know? Uh, but Christopher, mm -hmm. I've never met you in person. Uh, I was really mm -hmm. jealous when you and Rocky Glenn got together recently, uh, <laughs> because I want to meet both of you in person. Yeah, um, we're going to dinner tonight too. Are you really? Oh, oh, yeah. Man. And with see, the wives you can't too. tell me these things. I've got so much jealousy <laughs> inside my heart. Um, but I, I crave that. I crave relationships now more than I ever have. And, you know, I think for a long time, the institution was a substitute for actual relationships for me. Yeah. And I just can't exist there anymore. Um, I, I love, I still, maybe it's the pastor in me. I still love church services. I, I'll go uh, when I, when I can, uh, not during COVID. Uh, but um, I just, there's something now that, that I don't find there. And I think that that Sunday morning experience needs to be a jumping off point to something better. And uh, so these relationships, that's the better. And Christopher, you and your wife and I and several others were in a little group that met online for a while. And see, that's the stuff. That's where the relationships happen. And that's where the wrestling takes place. And uh, I know you're continuing to do some stuff. I was really excited about you were talking about meeting with some folks in a public park. I mean, that was so cool. I love that. But that's hard. It's really hard for us to do that. And folks don't know how to wrap their mind around that. And so it's hard to get commitment and buy-in to, to the ongoing wrestling where we're not all just about conclusions and certainty and coming out with the same set of doctrinal beliefs. That's uh, exactly what we experienced. You know, people were kind of excited about it when we talked about it. But when it actually came to reality, it was much harder to actually bring people together. Um. But yeah, I mean, you mentioned the relationships in, in the church setting and, and how, you know, they contend, well, they're, they're just really not very deep. And, um, you know, when that frameworks of that scaffolding really of the church setting falls away, then those friendships tend to fall away too. And we experienced that as well with our uh, leaving our church last year. You know, there are a couple of people have really kept in touch, but the, you know, the vast majority of them, it's crickets. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. So, yeah. But you guys, uh, from this podcast, from social media, from you guys have so many more people, you know, the, the family is so much bigger than you probably realized while you were going through that journey of, of, uh, 
pain and heartbreak in your local church. And I've certainly been there and, and but I'm not going to act innocent because the reality is in 25 years of local church ministry, I was the driving force behind a lot of the pain. Um, I mean, I was purity culture. I literally took federal money to go into public schools and teach, uh, you know, abstinence only education. And, you know, if, if you've done these things, then you're a broken, scarred person. Um, I, I look back on so much of what I thought was ministry uh, with tears now. And, 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 and I mean, not, not shame like the toxic, dangerous stuff, but just regret things that I had was so a part of and so committed to and so certain about that now I just, I'm broken that I was ever involved in it. Um, but I think that we're all on that journey, right? We're all a hundred percent confident in things that just aren't true. And mm-hmm. as we uh, start to see that some things that we thought were really important, lose their importance. And the, we realize the importance is in the relationships and the struggle and the change and the evolution. And uh, so that I, I think that, again, I think that's where I'm going to be for the rest of my life. There's a saying at, again, the church that I used to be a part of that says, um, don't let your theology get in the way of your ministry. Ooh. And uh, we say that a lot. And it's interesting to hear the way, uh, Jason, that you have shifted the definition of ministry. Because back in the day, the theology was everything to your ministry. And now it's not letting your theology get in the, or your, well, I guess I would say that maybe your theology has shifted to help you do ministry better. Maybe. I hope so. <laughs> I, um, I think we've got to make room for relationships and we don't sacrifice people on the altar of certainty. And I think I was doing that for a very, very long time. And I'm so sorry. And I hope that whatever lies ahead for me, um, there are relationships there and that there's freedom there to explore. And uh, like you said, not letting our theology get in the way of ministry. I, I like that concept. I think in, uh, in practice, it's a lot more complicated than it sounds for somebody like me uh, who the certainty was what it was all about for so long. Do you think that this, de- this massive deconstruction wave that we are seeing is the revival that the church has been praying for for decades yeah, I think so. And it's not the it's not the revival I thought I was praying for no, back in the day. A, I wanted a revival that's going to lead people into the church and to grow the Sunday morning crowd. And uh, the deconstruction movement's not going to do that. But there's, I do believe the end result is more people living out the ministry of Jesus, more people living out love in genuine relationships and genuine community. And so, I mean, that sounds like revival to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, used to, we're praying for revival was always looking backwards. You know, let's get back to the good old days when, you know, people actually knew their place and, (laughs) and stuff like that. But that's, you know, that's not, uh, you know, where the spirit of God is, there's life and there's growth. And that was, there was certainly no growth in those times. No, because anytime you're looking backwards, you're, you're, you're scaling it down, right? It's, it's, that's not where we are today. And I read a quote years ago when I was in the Church of God uh, by one of the Church of God leaders. I can't even remember who said it, but he said that uh, it's sad but true that the greatest opponents 
of the leaders of the current move of God will always be the leaders of the last move of God. Mm -hmm. And so the folks who led the last revival put up walls against the next revival because they think that revival always looks like what we did back there. Uh, I was a part of a church for a while that had been a thriving center of the camp meeting days, so much so that they literally built dormitories on the church property. They had separate buildings for the men and for the women uh, in dormitories with showers and the whole deal because people would come a couple times a year for a week or two uh, for these camp meeting, these glorious revivals, right? And when I got there, those days were long gone. Nobody was coming anymore to the camp meetings. They quit doing them. Um, and so I said, you know what? Let's sell this property. And uh, it's all paid for. So let's sell it and take the money. We'll move inside the city and we'll serve the poor. And everybody was on board until it came time to do it. And then one elder is like, I don't know about this. I, you know, God gave us this property for a reason. And um, that purpose had been fulfilled long ago. But in their mind, it was all about, let's go back to that. Those were the days. Make Christianity great again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's go back and do it the way we did back then when we all did it right and God was moving. Um, oh, and, and we've lost and, sight But of God can't move in a new purpose for that land that actually looks much more like the early, early, early church that, by the way, when everybody was being martyred and under persecution and, you know, between the year 33 and 300 and something, the church freaking exploded, by the way. <laughs> so mm -hmm. to, to go into the city and to serve the poor is very much like the, the church that people don't want to go back to. Well, maybe the martyrdom and persecution has something to do with that. I mean, the reality is it's just messy. It's uncomfortable. It's not going to be uh, well organized. And um, I, I just think people, you got to make room in your life for that. And uh, it's a lot easier to just show up to something someone else plans from 10 to 12 on Sunday. Jason, can you just talk to us a little bit now about who or what God is to you now? Who? That's a that's a dangerous question, right? Uh, yeah. God is so much bigger than I thought. Um, one thing has been consistent through my entire journey. I used to believe that God was love because the Bible told me that. Today, I believe that God is love because I've experienced it, because I feel the presence of God when I love and when somebody loves me, um, especially if I've screwed up and I've hurt them. My wife loves me uh, at my worst. And that is a constant reminder to me of the love of God, the presence of God. Um, that's when I feel God the most is when I realize I don't deserve somebody's love and they love me anyway. Um, and so maybe the point for me of ministry is to stop trying to figure out who deserves love and just start treating everyone like they were created in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect. Um, so who is God? God is love. And, and I really don't have it figured out beyond that at all. I, I don't know anything beyond that. Um, I believe uh, in the concept of, of God as a, a father, but I also believe in the concept of God as a mother and as a sibling. And as I think God is in everyone. And uh, that that's as we wrestle with one another and we wrestle with the questions that we'll learn more about the character of God. 
And uh, again, it always comes out in love. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And, um, you know, as you wrestle and as I have wrestled and Maggie, um, it just seems like, you know, your, your, your concept of God grows and grows and grows more expansive, more inclusive. Um, and you realize how limiting, you know, you, you, you thought God was, or your idea of God was before. Absolutely. And, you know, the, Jesus said the thing about you, you can't put new wine in an old wineskin. And mm-hmm. I tried to do that for so long. I tried to make freedom and this uh, a new mindset about God and all that work in the existing Bible Belt Church in Alabama. And it just didn't work. It kept blowing up the wineskin. All those churches mm-hmm. would split and shatter and fight. and um, mm-hmm. but But maybe that's not what it's about. Maybe it's not about gaining a crowd. Maybe it's just about experiencing God in the here and now, in the sacred now, in this present moment, experiencing God in our conversations, Christopher and Maggie, in our uh, in our love, in our relationships, uh, and in freedom, and, and the freedom to explore and to pursue the spiritual evolution as long as far as it'll take us. So just drink the wine and throw away the wineskins. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, that's that some good. theology that I can get on board with. <laughs> that's right. That's got to be a good cab. Yeah. How can people connect with you, Jason? Uh, pretty much everything about me is is at messyspirituality.org. You can find podcast episodes there, the occasional blog when I actually write one, which doesn't happen very often, um, and all my social media is there as well. And I love to connect with people. As you've heard, I'm all about relationships, but... Um, Uh, everything they can find, messyspirituality.org.